Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I haven't spoken to my next guest in, God, it's been, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years. But I always enjoyed conversations with Preston Manning, when he was the leader of the uh, Reform Party of Canada, we spent a lot of time on the air and during and uh, between elections. And uh, Mr. Manning, of course, went on to uh, to really, I think, invigorate a lot of discussion in this country. And he did it on a on a really bipartisan basis. There was a lot of conversation, a lot of activity involving people from all political and philosophical walks of life. The Manning Center, of course. And uh, and now Preston Manning has, uh, I love the title of the book, uh, a new book out called Do Something. And uh, Preston Manning joins us. Mr. Manning, it has been a long time. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, well, good to talk to you, Roy, and know that you're you're surviving this current crisis. Yeah, really good to reconnect. Uh, why the title? I find the title fascinating, Do Something. Or am I, am I putting the emphasis on the, on, the, on the right syllable here? Well, I, I think so. I, I worry about uh, getting into a pattern where an issue comes up, uh, particularly a public policy issue affecting large numbers of people, and, and we, we talk about it and write about it and blog about it and tweet about it. But uh, um, I think for many people, that becomes a substitute for actually doing something about it. So I've got all these chapters in this book listing on a whole bunch of things that need to be fixed in my judgment. But at the end of each one, I've got a list of, OK, if you buy even half of this, here's some things you can do. And uh, even this subject that you just raised or will be raising with premiers, uh, uh, I think that's a very vital one, this whole subject of economic uh, recovery. And uh, a big question there becomes who should lead it, who should do something about it rather than talk about it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, very that, much so. That's very crucial. That That's going to be the next big thing as far as this country's public policy agenda is concerned. Have you found, have you noticed, and I want to get into the, the substance of your book, and I'm, jo- I'm enjoying reading it. Uh, have you found that uh, we have uh, lapsed into or drifted into a, an attitude where we talk at each other instead of speaking with each other? We we uh, we don't listen to the to the other person's pr- pr- presentation or perspective uh, changes or, or or improvements to our way of life. We we just can't wait to get our own points in. Yeah, well, I think that that is true. Of course, in, in a way, in the political arena. Like in, in the House of Commons, you know, the, the seating arrangement is the opposition of the government are two swords lengths apart, which was how it was set up at the British <laughs> Parliament. The, the, the symbol of the House is a mace sitting on right. a table. A mace was a club for hitting someone over the head. Like, it's not exactly <laughs> conducive to... Uh, but the, the group I worry about, and uh, be honest, you probably have much better rapport with them than I do, are are millennials and or younger people that use the social media. Like, on the one hand, the social media has enormous benefits for engaging large numbers of people in, in political discussion, 
Uh, on the other hand, it can lend itself just to talking about something, not doing something, and also becoming very vicious in one's uh, uh, responses to somebody else's opinion. I've been involved in candidate recruitment all my life, both at the provincial and federal level, and, and the biggest single reason now given by very competent people as to why they won't run for public office is that I will not subject myself and usually my partner and my family to the abuse that I would get, uh, particularly through the social media. Yep. Yeah, I've heard that so many times from people I've talked to who are very successful in life, who've accomplished a lot, and who would perhaps otherwise say, well, look, I have some time now to to get involved in the political process and give something back. And then when I say to them, why don't you run? And they say, you know what, I would be dragged through the mud. I would be every little bone of any potential skeleton in my closet, no matter how small, would be dragged out for public view, and I'm not interested. Yeah, I've heard that. Like, I grew up in a political family. My dad was uh, premier in Alberta for a long time, so I I was used to that, and so it didn't bother me. But even when I was a kid, my my folks uh, hired a had a housekeeper nanny that used to look after us kids uh, when they were busy. And one of these actually took to cutting out of the newspaper negative stuff on my father because she thought this would impede our our development. And and when the legislature was sitting, the the newspaper looked like a piece of spaghetti, of course, because of all that. But but if you're not used to that, that that can be a big deterrent from uh, running for public office. Mr. Manning, when you talk about that, about people's um, involvement or lack of involvement, and let's pull social media back into the picture here because it's far too easy to consider that you've done your democratic duty or you've done whatever duty you have, you feel you might be uh, obliged to perform once you've ha- tweeted something or you know made an uh, expressed an opinion on Facebook or whatever other platform you choose to lose use rather and then when we look at what happens at election time when we get to have when we're really privileged to engage in the democratic process of casting a vote and we look at the actual turnout uh, uh, d- during elections, it's yes. it's very disturbing. And you you introduced that right in the introduction of your book. Well, yes, I think in the previous, say, 10, 15 federal elections in the uh, prior to the year 2000, the average turnout, I think, in Canada was around 70, 72 uh, percent. Now it's down to the late 60s. In other words, despite all the improvements in technology and communication, organization and everything, the the, uh, participation is is dropping. And it's even worse at the municipal level. Oh, the municipal level is is, is embarrassing. I've seen seen elections with 23% of of eligible voters deciding who's going to be sitting on council. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think that, I mean, we can lecture the the voter on the one hand, but I, I emphasize more with the political people that we simply got to raise the knowledge and skill level of people that are active in the political process so that their activities and their speeches and their communications are simply more attractive to people. And uh, I, I don't know if I told you this, because a long time ago, I, uh, uh, when I was in Parliament, I got to know the uh, international liaison department of the Communist Party of China, which <laughs> some reason that <laughs> our party but when i got out of the parliament I, I asked some of those people i said i want to tour your training facilities for your top political people in china and to my surprise they said okay 
And so I, I went and visited three of these uh, they're virtually university campuses, one in Beijing, one in Shanghai, and one in Shenzhen. And when you see the, the buildings, the lecture halls, the think tanks that are connected to these things and the investment that they make in their political people, 20% of their training is military, 20% is on state-directed capitalism. Uh, they require their top people to serve in three different areas of the country, to serve in two or three different levels of government, municipal, state, and you want to get up to the top level, you're required to come back every five years and take a refresher course at these training facilities. And when I compare what they invest in their top political people, and we're competing with these people on the global stage, and what we, the little that we invest, uh, I think that's one of the weaknesses of our system. We've just got to raise the knowledge and skill level of our, our political folks so that they attract more public interest, public support, etc., you know, uh, we live in a time where people have, and I think with justification, or are, I shouldn't say have, maybe it's still developing, losing faith in politicians and the political process. And as you point out, a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's very little in the way of communication. If I ask a question of a politician, Mr. Manning, I can pretty well be assured that I'm not going to get an answer the first time round. Maybe not even the second time round. They're going to try to shift it toward political talking points and try to get out of it that way. I try my best to make sure that we stay on an issue, and I did that with one politician who stormed out of the studio because I wouldn't let go of the question. But that's a story for another day. But we're polarized, and we need to be have a we need to have a sense that the people who are representing us, whom we elect to supposedly pragmatically represent the interests of the people of the province of the country are doing exactly that and not just representing their own needs or their own uh, or their party and then unfortunately we have and i you know i have to bring the prime minister into this because he's the prime minister of canada now where he's been proven to have uh, questionable ethics uh he's he's done things that are embarrassing to the country and yet he's re-elected albeit with a minority government so when you have these things happening you can't expect, I think, the the the, the sense of, of 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 trust of the electorate to grow. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I think if our political people were better equipped to answer some of the questions that they're being asked, that there'd be a, a greater inclination to be frank. You, you take this COVID nineteen. Uh, uh, I mean, and it's been a major factor affecting the, the, the lives and the health of, of large numbers of people and, and scaring a lot more people than those that have been afflicted. But uh, many, there's this gap between the science and political communities. In fact, I get into that in this book, too. But most of our political people couldn't spell epidemiologists prior to COVID-19. All of a sudden, they find they, uh, they, they had to find one, uh, trust them, and start using their advice. And uh, I think if on that particular score, if, if you could raise the, the knowledge and skill of that political person, they would be much more inclined to be frank and honest in their answers to questions and when they don't really know what they're talking about. So somebody's made this point that, you know, to become a, a, a barista at Starbucks, you, you have to have 15 hours of training or something to know the difference between a a mocha and a latte, but you can become a lawmaker in the Parliament of Canada, or you can become an elected representative of a constituency without one hour of training in lawmaking and without one hour of training in what does representation uh, actually mean. That's and so true. I, that's, that's just not good for our... No. 
firing. No, well, when you think about it, when you think about it, Mr. Manning, that's actually stunning. Let me take a quick break. We will come back with Preston Manning. His book is Do Something. Mr. Manning, um, you also write about balancing the needs and interests of minorities and majorities through unity politics instead of identity politics. If I were a cynic, I'd say good luck with that. But since you are you're raising the point, I think it's incredibly important. Would you address that for us? Well, I, I think this minority politics, which or identity politics maybe is the right word for it, has a cynical background to it where politicians and consultants to them say, look, if we can identify a particular group by a, a very personal characteristic, their gender, their sexual orientation, their racial background, and if we can promise them certain benefits and entitlements because of that characteristic, we can win their support. And uh, and if anybody ever attacks our position on that, we can accuse them of being prejudiced against that particular group. And uh, I think that has been, that style of politics has been practiced particularly by the federal Liberal Party. And, and in the end of the day, uh, I think it ends up breaking the society into smaller and smaller minority groups based on, on the differences between them rather than the things that we have in common. And what I try to argue in the book, that if you want unity, and this country's always got to think about unity, you're far better to focus on the characteristics that people have in common, that we're all human beings, we're all in this country Canadians, and build on that foundation rather than building on the differences. You mentioned unity, and uh, if I just go back a few months to uh, weeks before we uh, we became really familiar with COVID-19. There was supposed to be a, 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 a conference with the prime minister and premiers who were going to challenge him on some very significant issues, energy being one of them. And national unity was a hugely important core question. Is, if we can set COVID-19 aside for just a moment, is Canadian unity sufficiently fractured that the continuance of Canada, as it is currently geographically comprised, do you think it's in real danger? Well, I think it is uh, fragile, Roy. I mean, in this last federal election, as you're alluding to, the uh, the Bloc Québécois came back uh, from Quebec with a large number of seats. The uh, uh, In Western Canada, the federal Liberals were completely shut out of all 48 seats in uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. You have uh, the poll showing about a third of Albertans being willing to consider secession. So I do think uh, national unity is threatened. I, I do think the one thing that the federal parliament, the federal government could do is to, uh, and I actually talked to constitutional lawyers about this, what could you do? Is there any constitutional amendment that would strengthen Canadian unity and might have half a chance of getting through the parliament and getting seven premiers with 50% of the population to support it? And the one we came up with would be a, a, a provision that the federal government cannot spend tax uh, treaty make or institute programs in areas of provincial jurisdiction, such as natural resources development, or joint jurisdiction, such as the environment, unless they get the consent to the affected province. I think that one measure would do more to uh, eliminate some of the antagonisms between the provinces and the federal government than any other measure I could think of. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. It really does. I mean, it sounds like it would work. It sounds like that people would get behind that. And ultimately, that's what you're going to need is to get people yeah, yeah, behind the concept. 
yeah, you can argue with the federal liberals particularly. It doesn't mean that you can't do anything in the area of natural resources or on the environment. But if it's affecting provincial jurisdiction, you have to get the consent of the people that are affected. Indeed. Not, that's not an unreasonable position. Uh, we have a minute left. What What do you want your readers to get from Do Something? What's the What, what should they come away with? Well, I'd ask them to take a look. I mean, it's asking a lot. Read through these 365 <laughs> suggestions. But pick out one or two of those things that you yourself feel comfortable, strongly about and enough to, to actually act upon. Maybe it's just simply contacting one of your elected officials. Maybe it's becoming part of an interest group. Maybe it's uh, reading a little bit more about the history of the country so you know where we're coming from in order to know where we're headed. But, uh, but not to be passive, to, to do something. We've got a wonderful country, but you can't take it for granted. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.